0: Meanwhile, back in Corinth, this church in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you, or someone can hand you one, just raise your hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul is kind of just correcting a lot that's going on wrong in this church. People are coming to Jesus out of a pagan culture, out of a background, and they're bringing that pagan stuff right into the church. And it's affecting how they judge who's speaking, you know, because they had the American Idol situation with orators in their culture. They loved people who could speak well. People who didn't speak well, oh well. Paul wasn't a very eloquent speaker, but he could write. And so there was this judgment going on, this worldliness that was infecting the church. They'd bring each other to court because it was kind of a pastime. They'd like to bring each other to court to see who'd be right. There was other stuff going on in the church, there was just immorality going on in general. Just a lot of stuff just getting dragged into the church. And Paul's coming in saying, you're very gifted by God. He's given you gifts of the Spirit. Things are going on. But there's also a lot of things hindering you from experiencing uh, what God has, ha- has for you. And also, you're, you're ruining your witness to the world when you allow the world to infiltrate you like this. And so there's a call to holiness by Paul, calling them and correcting them through teaching to not engage with the world in the way that they're doing, to be separate from it, be in it, but not of it, so to speak. And the issue now he's dealing with after dealing with buying temple meat and and how the women were not uh, on purpose, I don't think, but they were just disrespecting authority within the church uh, because culture was influencing them. And so um, Paul goes on in verse 17, he says, In the following directives or commands, I have no praise for you. How many of you like to hear that? <clears throat> you know, I want to talk to you, and what I'm going to talk to you about, I don't have anything good to say, so let's have fun. No, it's not fun, it's, it's corrective, and that's what Paul's doing here through most of the letter. But notice in verse 31, it says, I praise you for, uh, I'm sorry, uh, praise uh, verse 2 of chapter 11. says, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding the teachings. So there's a lot of things that they're holding to. And he says, I praise you for that, but this is a real issue. This is really important in the church. And so he says in the following directions, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, that word is the iglesia, your church, your gathering. It's not referring to a building. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. How many of you love to be in a toxic work environment? Isn't that great when you wake up and you go to work and it's just people sniping each other and cutting each other down and undermining each other and there's just a spirit of contention? How many of you, just, it just weighs your soul down? Anybody? And then you have Christians in the mix who aren't helping anything. Well, this is the church Paul's talking to. He says, "When you guys get together, it's horrible. You guys are not not you guys. You guys back then is horrible. What, what's going on there is It's doing more harm than good." Now you got to give it to him. In in for, in Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty-five, it says, "Hey, when you get together." Don't don't forsake the getting together with one another as many have done, but spur one another on into good works. So they were actually getting together, amen. That's a great thing. So yay on that one. Don't give up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the date approaching. And just before that, he was talking about glorifying God. And so when the church gets together, the purpose is to seek him, to glorify him, to worship him. And then your ministry, when you walk in this door, which is the building we happen to meet in, you are the church. This is not the church. This is the building. You are the church. When we get together, this gathering, your ministry, did you know you have a ministry, is to edify one another, to build up, encourage, to spur one another. And how does that happen? Through the various giftings that God has given each of you. Some of you are incredible encouragers, helpers, ministry exhorters, praying for people, the gift of mercy. Someone's just having a hard week, and you're able to come by and put your arm around him or sit next to him. So the the gifts of the Spirit are happening, and there's this love that's happening for one another, the edifying, the building up. Well, guess what? This church was operating in such a way to actually they were tearing each other down, even though they were really gifted. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? And so it's sad, and Paul's just saying, hey, it's not good when you're getting together. You're doing more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. In other words, I'm having to weed through all the information here. I'm not sure if I can you know, figure out with all the emails I'm getting and texts and tweets what's going on in your church. But it sounds like there's some bad stuff. I pretty much believe that it's going on from what I see. And that word for divisions is schisms. And this is where, the, where you get the word sex. S-E-C-T-S, right? Got to clarify these days. So there's, there's, and that means differences of opinion. It isn't necessarily that uh, those things are bad. Divisions are bad. There's differences of opinions. You see, the, the ASEANs were a sect. And there's different groups with different emphasis. But what was happening is that these opinions were dominating or, or being... Um, Not exercised in a way that would build each other up, but tearing each other down within the church. And so he's saying there's these divisions among you. And James says, hey, the kind of divisions that divide and tear down, if you flip over to James chapter 4, that's right in your Bibles. Right before 1 Peter, right after Hebrews. Hebrews. He said, James, in verse 4, James, was, who's uh, heading up the church in Jerusalem there, says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And that word for fights and quarrels is divisions. Same word. What causes those things among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And think about that. Place it in the workplace. Gosh, I really want something to happen. Or I'm craving something. Or this isn't happening. And you're just... Anybody? Yeah, so there's this turmoil that's happening in your own heart, which happens to all of us, right? But what do we do with it is the key, correct? And he goes on and goes, you want something, but you don't get it. Anybody been there? I want this to happen. It's not happening my way. I want to have this, and it's not going my way. I'm talking to you, not me. He says, you want, <laughs> so you, you want <laughs> something, but you don't get it. You kill, and you covet but you cannot have what you want. Man, wow, that's a heavy church there. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have, why? Because you don't ask God. And so there was prayerlessness in the church, wasn't there? There was prayerlessness in the church. There were people who were operating in the flesh. Isn't that interesting? So quarrels and divisions come from people who make decisions apart from God's will and allow their desires to trump God's will. Does that ever happen in your life, my life? Oh, yeah. And then he says, when you actually do ask, for those of you who pray, when you ask, you don't receive because you are asking with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. God, I want to win the lottery. Why isn't this happening? God, I want this promotion. God, I want this money. God, I want this house. God, I want, I want, I want. And and it's for my kingdom, my glory. Instead of approaching God, say, what is your will in this? What is your will in this? In church, we have tremendous opportunity in the next few months and years to seek God about what his will is for the future of our church. And God has been speaking to me on this, Matt, you just come and seek me and spur as many people on as you can to come and pray and ask God what his will is for our church and just don't try to lay out a plan even though you want to and you want to manipulate circumstances and force things to happen in my time and anybody have their own selfish desires going on? But to get together and say, what is your mind? What is your heart above anything? You want to reach this community. You want to reach this world. You want people to have a vibrant relationship with you more than any of us ever do. So your will be done. So, seeking the Lord, but not asking out of that selfish motive. And he keeps going when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, my kingdom. And he goes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship, and here's the key friendship with the world is hatred towards God? You've been saved. I have been saved out of Matt being king. And Lord of my life. Anyone? And now he is Lord, and we graciously say your will. Now, Corinth was struggling with this. They were allowing their flesh and the old way of doing things to dominate and infiltrate their new walk in relationship with Jesus Christ, which creates misery and which creates division. And it's not unity, and it's not walking in the Spirit. And so Paul is loving this church and you can go on and read more about that. But he's, he's talking to them and, and calling them to this lack of uh, stop uh, being carnal and, and, and now just lean into the spirit. Guys, you're ruining things here. And so verse 19, no doubt. There have to be divisions, and this is a really word. He says there's divisions and quarrels among you, but then he says, no doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you have God's approval. What in the world? He just said there's divisions, and he's saying that that's bad, and he says, well, there has to be, because that's how you find out who, who God's approved. What is he saying there? He's saying that when problems happen in the church, the divine way of showing who is operating in the flesh and who is operating in the spirit, and spiritual people rise in humility and love and kindness and seeking the Lord and fleshly people flesh out. Amen? When you have a problem in the church, this is what happens. When you have a problem in families and relationships, you find out who's really operating in the spirit and who's operating in the flesh. And what's happening in those churches is they're going to have communion. Now he's going to bring an actual principle. And what's happening is this thing that's supposed to bring unity is causing division. And so problems within churches and relationships, they bring out personality, don't they? And they also bring out spirituality. And so be aware of that as we are living life together in Christ. So, there's no doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Remember, Jesus received God's approval. Remember, Peter had a different opinion when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter's saying, hey, Jesus is revealed and in shining in glory, and he goes, hey, let's, let's make three tabernacles. I've got this idea. Let's do one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. This would be awesome. And then a the voice from heaven comes down and says, no, nice try, great heart, love that you're trying to worship, but I do not approve of that. I approve of my son. See him, listen to him, here he is. And so Peter has experienced this. I've experienced this. And we all desire to live for God's approval, to glorify God, to hear him say, well done. But he says, when you come together, and this is the issue that's happening in the church, this is what he's getting at, verses 20 through 22 deal with this issue, says, is it not the Lord's supper you eat? For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and the other gets drunk. What a church service here. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And so the Lord's Supper, communion, was celebrated a little bit differently than what we do now. If you remember when Jesus, the night he died, they were celebrating the Passover, and remember what the Passover was? They were remembering back in their history when God delivered them out of slavery, out of Egypt. Anybody? And what happened? There were 10 plagues, and Charlton Heston was there, all that great stuff, right? In the end, what happens? The last plague, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened and said, no, I will not let the people go. And so God sent a plague, and the destroyer would come through the night. This plague. Whatever it was, the destroyer came through the night and killed every single firstborn child. Judgment for harden their hearts against God, the nation of Egypt. And what happened? There was provision for those who, had, who were following the Lord. And the provision was, and it was specifically commanded, slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost of your home, gather together, bake unleavened bread, eat this meal together. And what would happen is when the destroyer came through, the only people that did not experience judgment were the people with the blood on the door, the blood of the lamb. And you see the picture jumping forward. Christ is sitting with his disciples. He sits down for this Passover meal, which is for them to remember this. And he takes bread and he says, This is my body broken for you. That lamb is me. In this, and he says, Then after they ate the blood of the new covenant, which we'll talk about in just a second, this blood is shed for you. So the Lord's Supper. Now what happened? That's very Jewish in origin. You see that? Very integrated in their soul. But now you've got a bunch of Walla Wallans who come to Jesus, and they don't have the Jewish connection. But they have temple feasts going on, and so they decide to have this love feast, and basically it's a potluck. Okay, so they... It went from the Lord's supper to Potluck. And everybody brought up their stuff, but guess what? There were slaves and there were really rich people, right? And so guess what the rich people brought? Food, great food. Guess what the slaves brought? Nothing. you see what's happening? And people are approaching this time that is supposed to be remembrance. They break the bread. People weren't waiting for one another. But what were they doing? They were letting their hunger and their desires and their carnality play out in this supposed thing that was supposed to unite everybody. And so they would go ahead and they would eat all the food and they would get drunk to excess. Their flesh is being played out, right? It's happening. And what's not happening? Esteeming others, humility. There's no humility. There's no patience, with one another, which is what Jesus actually did. He denied himself so that someone else could, be, could benefit, you see? And Paul's saying that this is not what needs to happen when you guys gather together. You're actually doing the exact opposite of what God called you to do to esteem one another. He just got done saying in verse 31 of chapter 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. And if we want to, if people look at us and they see that we are selfish people and we are putting ourselves first above other people, We've lost our witness, and we're not glorifying Jesus, and especially in communion, this setting. There are two things that Jesus asked the church to do as ordinances, things that were to happen over and over. Oh, not, baptism was to happen one and done, right? And that's when we submerge ourselves in, in water, and what happens is that's this public declaration that Jesus is my Savior. I have died with him, and I will rise with him. And it's also a picture of the Holy Spirit fully flooding my life and filling me. And so, we, and, and through that baptism, we are all baptized into one spirit, one body, one fellowship. It is the thing that unites us, the death and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we are all one tribe of people. Amen? Do You see that? So that's beautiful. And then he also does communion, a continual reminder of that. A continual reminder of that. And so when I eat this bread, and you eat that bread, and we drink this cup together. We're eating the same body, the same flesh, the same nourishment that's nourishing me is nourishing you. We're united together, and there's this constant remembrance and this fellowship that is happening, and the idea is focusing and remembering on Jesus, which we'll talk about in a second. These two beautiful things the Lord has called us to remember, but what's happening is instead people are Letting their hunger get out of control and their drunkenness, and they are not waiting for each other, and they're not seeing their brother who doesn't have any food, and they're eating all the chicken so the pastor doesn't get anybody at any at the end. I'm sorry, did I say that loud? No, I'm just kidding. But there's a strategy behind there because if there's chicken left over, you can eat as much as you want if you're at the end. See that? No, I'm just kidding. But you see what's happening. And he says, shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. What in the world? For I received this from the Lord. And really quickly, now he's going to teach them. He's actually going to give them doctrine about what what it really is about, what's communion about. So don't you love it when you tell your kids, hey, I told you not to blah, blah, blah. You're doing this. And then they don't tell you why. You don't don't tell them why. And you don't explain the reason behind it and what you're trying to build on them. And what it's all about, just go to church. Why? Why is it important for us to gather together? Why is it important to sacrifice other things so that we can be together on Sunday morning and Wednesdays or whenever we decide to meet as a fellowship? You see what I'm saying? Why is it important not to lie? Why is it important to, you know? So Paul, actually, he explains why. This is the real teaching behind the Lord's Supper, which is very important for us. He says, for I received from the Lord, either through the apostles or direct revelation, what I also passed on to you. And notice that's what a real minister does, and that is what we do. We receive from the Lord and we give to others. That's what we do. That's what you as ministers of Jesus Christ do. You receive from the Lord, you seek him, you pray, you ask, feed me, that I might go out and give what you've given to me to others. It's not just a selfish thing. So when you come here on Sunday morning and I'm teaching you through the Holy Spirit, I pray, you take this and you apply it and you give it. When I'm hanging out with you one-on-one and you have a gift and, and you're showing and you're ministering to me and you're encouraging me, which you do so much, I cannot survive without you. I take that and I'm blessed and I take that love and that nourishment and that experience and I pass it on to others, you see? We're never meant to just hold on to what we've been given. We're meant to give it away. Like the loaves and the fish. That kid could have held on to it, but he didn't. He put it in the hands of Jesus, and what happened? It multiplied, and it nourished many. And that's what we do with our faith. That's what we do with our resources. That's what we do with our love and our families and our homes and our cards and our time. And all these things, they're just gifts for the kingdom for, that we might win some. But he goes on. For I receive the Lord, and also pass it on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a lot of discussion about what that means. This is my body. Is it literally my body that... The, I think the Catholic Church holds to that it literally turns into the body of Christ and that's why only priests can do it and only people who are confirmed in the church can do it. And there's some other things. And then there's other views like transubstantiation, consubstantiation, things that you will need to know on your quiz. <clears throat> Is it just strictly a symbol? So a lot of people have wrestled with this. Martin Luther was arguing over like Zwingli and said, no, it's literally the body. Well, Jesus said I am the door. Is he literally a door? You know, So there's this, you know, what's so funny is something that's supposed to bring us together causes division again. Great, way to go, guys. But this is my body, which is for you. Jesus is sitting here at the table with his disciples. He's having a meal. Let's we'll see, we're all gathered around. Jesus is there, and he looks at each of you and looks around the room and says, this is my body, which is for you, and he breaks it. And then they all eat. And then at the end of the meal, he passes the cup. And he says, do this in remembrance of me, right? So what is supposed to happen when we're having communion? We're supposed to be focusing on Jesus Christ. This is very important. What happens if we're not? He's going to get to it. He says, in the same way, after the supper, so they ate a whole meal together, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is, uh, this is the, uh, sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The early church, if you look at your bulletins, Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to Four things basically. The Apostles' Doctrine to prayer to a couple other things I wrote on there. I put on there so many times I can't remember it. But one of them was the breaking of bread. Now, people argue oh, is it really the breaking of bread? (laughs) The four pillars, right? Yeah. Is it really the breaking of bread? Or are they just eating, getting together and eating? Or are they having communion? I think they're having communion and eating together a lot. I think it was all together. It was part of their lives. And these people got together once a week and the slaves were looking forward to eating a meal. People were looking forward to sharing the Lord and his provision and his love with one another. Whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. I want to ask you, how many of you have communion in your own homes? Now, you don't need to tell me, but whenever. What does that mean? means you and your family can have communion with Jesus Christ every day, every morning, any time you want, any time. As often you do it, remember Him. Needs to go out of the church, friends, and into the home. Not that we don't gather together and do this. We will, and we, and we love it. But let's make it heartfelt. Let's make it, something that you can own in this spirit, remembering Jesus. Praise the Lord. Yeah. But he says, this is the cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is this new covenant he's talking about? And he's saying, this is the blood of my new covenant. And Paul talks a lot about in Hebrews, and we're going to actually read a lot in closing about Hebrews, but blood was the closing deal on a covenant. You couldn't have a covenant with God without blood because there's sin involved. And God says, without the shedding of blood, there's no taking away of sins. I can't get around it. You can't change the law. Sin requires death. Sin requires death. And so, remember the story of Abraham and Abraham, Abraham chapter 15, no, uh, Genesis chapter 15. God gives him a promise. God came to him and said, through you all your descendants will be blessed. God approaches us. We do not approach him Get with covenants, right? He approached Abraham and said, this is what I will do on your behalf. What I want you to do is I want you to take these animals, a, you know, a heifer, a, a, a sheep, and then and then uh, then like pigeons i want you to cut them in half he didn't do the pigeons why in the world would you cut them in half what in the world why would you cut animals in half and he sets them on the side and then he says i will god just basically says i will do all these things abraham and it says that abraham believed god and it was a credit to him through righteousness Faith came to Abraham. He believed that what God said he would do, would do it. Abraham did not walk through the middle of those two cut things, which was the handshake on the covenant. God alone walked through it because God alone could accomplish what he said he would do. Abraham simply had to believe and follow in obedience. Animals had to die. They were separated. They walked through the middle. God walked through the middle with the the fire pot and the torch, right? Right? The covenant was sealed in blood. Why was it cut in half? We'll read ahead in Hebrews in just a minute. Something had to be torn. Then you get to Moses, Leviticus chapter sixteen, Exodus twenty-four, Leviticus sixteen. He says to go ahead and and, and take. And he read he read the book. Actually, numbers. Uh, sorry, Exodus twenty-four. I have it somewhere in my notes. Exodus 24, he takes all the people, and he reads the law to them, he sacrifices, It says he got, Exodus 24, he got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set 12 pillar stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls, so they're Things are dying as fellowship offerings for the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half splashed it against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant; and he read it to them, the law, and they responded, "We will do everything the Lord has said, and we will obey." And then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. I know this is crazy. And then this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, all the priests. And the 70 elders went up and saw the God of Israel and under his feet was something like pavement made of uh, lapis, uh, lazuli, uh, as bright as blue as the sky. So somehow they're able to see into into the eternal realm and they're seeing God, the elders of Israel. But God did not raise his hand against the leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. What in the world's happening there? They're having communion, and they could only have communion with God, with the, with, the, with the sacrifice of the blood. They could not reach God, and this is the point of Hebrews, and now Jesus is saying that's the old covenant of the law, physical things, a building, a physical building where people went in and out. A holy of holies Hebrews talks about, but what Jesus is saying, I've got a new covenant for you. It's not physical. It's not this building. It is Heavenly, And what I accomplished on your behalf did not happen in a physical building. It happened in the throne room of heaven. And that veil that was torn was my body. I was cut in half that you might enter into something that you never could. The very presence of God. And so these people are sitting here after all of this of what Jesus did, and they are taking communion without humility, and they are not remembering what the Lord did, and it's just—it's a religious act, and there isn't this great understanding of what's going on, and, and this deep sense of reverence, and 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 oh gosh, you know, God has forgiven me, so you go first. I would den- like Jesus. He denied himself, so you have that piece of chicken, brother. Something simple but what they were doing showed their heart. They were not esteeming each other by themselves. They were selfish. And how does that play out in our lives? How does that work out with one another? At potlucks, at work, with the world, in our relationships with one another, in things that are going on in our church, the decisions we'll need to make to go where we're going wherever the Lord is leading. May it be in the presence and and, and just the view of the cross, the view of that sacrifice, the view of the power, the holiness of who he is. I pray that the love of Christ would radiate through us, but I want to finish by reading a little bit of Hebrews. And I know this is going to be heady for some of us. It is for me. Uh, Hebrews chapter, let's go to chapter 9, I think. Says in chapter 9, verse 1, now the first covenant, the one with Moses that we just saw, where bulls and goats were being sacrificed, where there was a physical priesthood, where there are people going in the temple and out of the temple. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle that was set up. And in its first room, so there's this building, and there was this first room you go into, and there's a lampstand, and there's a table. And they consecrated bread. And so you see this lampstand filled with oil, picture of the Holy Spirit. When you see Jesus walking through the lampstand in Revelation, the churches are in his presence. So he's taking physical things and represent spiritual, what's really happening in heaven. Did you know heaven is real? Did you know that time and space and all these things, like space is a physical, space can be bent. It can be folded. I know I'm getting into quantum physics. But as we're going into, as we're studying more about our our world, we're figuring out that what we perceive as material has limitations. There are other dimensions that we can't even comprehend. How do you translate something from a 3D world into a 2D world? If I'm a three-dimensional being and you are flat people living on a flat surface, how do I show you all that I am? Does that make sense? Say you're flat people. What do you see? You don't see, wet. You don't see height. De- you just see a line. You might be a little wider line, a little less, right? But you see a line. I'm trying to bring it down a dimension. So, what do you? How do you show eternity? How do you show God? How do you show heaven? To an uneternal, unheavenly people living in a different experience in a physical world. You want to know what the Father looks like, you look at Jesus. Jesus became flesh. You want to know what the heavenly sanctuary was like, you look at the tabernacle. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what's he talking about? There was bread in this physical temple. There was Water. I mean, there was the spirit. There was altars. There was all these things pointing to him. He's saying that there was this physical place. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there was a lampstand, the table, and there was consecrated bread. This was all called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, the veil, was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the, gold, the incense where the prayers would come up. In heaven, and the golden, uh, golden covered ark with the ark of the covenant. And this ark contained the golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff, that had budded. All these are symbols of things. And the stone tablets of the covenant, the law. And above the ark, there were cherubim of glory. What do we see when we get to Revelation? And we see the throne of God. What are surrounding His throne? Cherubim, not the little chubby guys with you know wings. Fierce freaky-looking things with four faces and six wings and unapproachable, and they cry out, holy, 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 all day, all night. And here you have a physical representation of the throne room of God and that seat on top of the ark. What is that seat called? It's called the mercy seat, the Bema seat. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and all these other things, and above the ark were cherubim, And when everything had been arranged, verse 6, like this, the priests entered regularly, we're almost done, into the outer room, carrying on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. Are we hearing this? There's a room that no one can go in, where the very presence of God is. And no one can go in there except for the high priest, and he couldn 't go in there without blood, but once a year, in, there, in which he offered for himself, because he was sinful in the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance, and the Holy Spirit was showing us by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabern- tabernacle was still standing we 'll move ahead. This is an illustration of the for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. They were only able to cover over, they weren't able to take away. Only cover over sin, not take away, remove. Anybody? The old covenant couldn't was not good enough. They're only matters of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, the new covenant. And here it is. When Christ came as high priest, what does that mean? He talks about Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek? That crazy guy? Abraham, he came up to him, and Melchizedek, he says he didn't have a begin, he he didn't have a beginning, he didn't have an end, and yet he was offered sacrifices. Jesus has no beginning, has no end. He is a high priest. He never, uh, it says, uh, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already to come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of his creation. So what did Jesus do? Did he go through our tabernacle? No, he didn't. What was he doing when he died on the cross? He was in it. He died and he went into heaven. The tabernacle. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls and goats. Does't work. But he entered the most holy place, that special room, in the, the physical representation is just a shadow of the reality. and Jesus walked into that room. He entered the most holy place once and for all. How did he enter by the bloods of bulls and goats? No, by his own blood. And Jesus is sitting here and saying to the people as they have in communion, this is the blood, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is how you get in. This is how you get into the very presence of God. This is how your sins are forgiven. This is how unholy, broken people are passed over through me. I am the door. And what happened to the door? It was torn open. And when Jesus died, that veil in the physical table was torn from the top to bottom because something was happening in heaven. And now we, through the blood of Jesus Christ, have access into the throne room of the Father, which no one would be able to do. And we have access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And not only that, and I share this with you often because I want you to have this picture We run boldly into the throne room of God that we may receive grace in time of need. How many of you need grace? Your Father's arms are wide open for you today. How many of you are broken with sin and divisions and things going on in your heart, in your family, in your body, in your life, in our nation? You have freedom through Jesus Christ to access the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the eternal hope through faith in Jesus Christ, through his blood, that is the new covenant. And it's no longer a covenant of the, the law of stone and the acts of sacrifices of bulls and goats. He goes on to explain, no, this is now a new covenant where I write those things on your heart. It's a thing of the spirit, where my spirit now comes and live in you, the spirit of Jesus Christ that was able to do all those things, that same spirit, Now comes and he lives in you. And by faith, you live a life walking in the spirit the same way Jesus did. And that is how we're to live this life. I know it's kind of, it's a lot, there's a lot there. I would encourage you to read Hebrews 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, probably several. But this is yours. And so Jesus said, this is the new covenant Not with bulls and goats. I did it. Receive it by faith and walk in and enjoy. It's yours. And so, what happens when you approach the thing that he gave us to remember with disregard for one another and for his sacrifice? First Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this, it, this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to do what? Examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. You examine yourself. You say, Lord, search me. This is a holy moment. Search me. Am I, is there someone I've got something wrong with? Is there a situation that needs to be resolved? Am I holding something against someone? Because I certainly don't want you holding anything against me right now. Jesus is teaching is there is there a, something you got to clear up, Lord? Is there a way I can love? You know, I've got a problem with. You just lay it out. Is your love flowing? Is your spirit flowing in my life? Is there sin that just cleanse me? And what is that? That's humility. That's what Fred talked about last week. That's humbling ourselves and saying, "I am the most full when I'm empty." When I'm filled with Him, I think Fred, this is what you said. I'm the most filled when I'm filled with Jesus. When I'm humble, when I'm truly humble, I'm truly empty of myself and filled with Him. And that's the spirit of Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit happening in our hearts. Humility was not happening in their service. There was not esteeming of one another, and that is not the spirit of the Lord. And then in ending, a man ought to examine himself before he eats. Circle before. Underline, examine himself. And he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, recognizing what that means, what he did, what he does, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is not eternal judgment. This is, man, you are in the woodshed. What are you doing? And how does that play out? This is why many of you are weak and sick. And number among you have fallen asleep. God has had to execute some of you because you are living in a, you, you're just di- total disregard is what he's saying to the Corinthians. People who are doing that, they're treading on God's discipline. So God, part of God's discipline can include sickness. It can include being weak. And it also can include him taking you home. Early. Early departure. Now I know there are many who to to go to this verse and they just say if you you know you've got sin in your life therefore that's why you're sick. You know, and I think sometimes that's true, but gosh, you know what? Don't manipulate it. Look what he's talking about. There's a, there's a there's a total disregard for Christ. This is how they're operating. They're disregarding the love for the body and and they're bringing judgment upon themselves and Perhaps this is the reason why some of us are sick. Some of us have gone home. These types of things, I don't know. Anyone? So read it for what it's saying. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Notice when God does this. It's not eternal judgment. This is God's discipline to do what? Wake you up. And you flip over to Hebrews, and it talks about the Lord disciplines those he loves. If you are not experiencing the discipline of uh, the Lord in your life when you're living berserkly, guess what? You should be scared. But a sign of God's love for you is discipline in your life. What do we need a little bit more of in our nation? Discipline. In our kids. Why? How, why don't we discipline? Because I think there's a lot of selfish parents out there who don't want to go through it and take time to really work through it. And I'm not judging anyone in this room. I'm not thinking. I'm just looking at, at our at our nation. And I'm looking at my own life going, gosh, I really don't want to deal with this, John. I'm calling him out by name. I'd rather not. Well, love sacrifices self for the betterment of someone else. And so I will just have a miserable day because it's more important for my son to have godly character than for me to... What do what I want to do. You see what I'm saying? And God loves. He loves us. And he's okay with me having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year or going into financial problems or whatever it might be. So he gets my attention and lets Christ come up and live in me. And I feel like, I don't know about you, but as Christians, we think we can live this dual life and have joy. We can't. God is serious about having all of you. He's serious about having all of you this morning, and he will do whatever he wants to get your attention and he loves you by the way, and it's we assume always that pain is bad. I tell you what, some of the sweetest moments of my life where I have no one else to go to except for him. And only he can still can calm my soul. And I run into that throne room and I talk to my father and I tell him what's going on and how I'm hurting or whatever's going on. And sure enough, he sends his spirit and then he comforts. He wants to have fellowship with you. And he can do it willfully or he we can do it with a bit and a bridle. I much prefer, come on over. And so, verse 32 to the end. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, here's the application. When you come together, wait for each other. Come on. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. Just don't let, give yourself an opportunity to let your flesh play out. If, you're, if you know you're going to go in there and pig out, just eat before home so someone else can have some. That's the Spirit. He should eat at home so that when you meet together, it would not result in judgment. When I come, I'm going to give you further Reject. uh, I'm sorry. Further, (laughs) not rejection. Further uh, directions. And then, he says in verse twelve, in chapter twelve. Now about spiritual things. Let's get on to the fun. Let's get on to the things that God has for you. I'm tired of eleven chapters of smacking me around. Aren't you? Like, let's move on. I want (laughs) to encourage you this week to take time and have communion with Jesus Christ in your own home, with your own family, with your own friends. Perhaps you want to call some people over and say, would you like to do this? Even do a meal together. Let his love and his joy and his provision just flow out to you. And remember, he has made the way He's the one who walked through. I just receive. Lord, forgive me. Lord, thank you. Lord, more of your spirit this week. And we just walk in joy. Amen. Love you all very much. Thanks for allowing me to um, spend time with you talking about some things that are kind of you know, heavy. And I look forward this week to seeing the fullness of the Holy Spirit poured out on each and every one of you. I mean, it's cool what God is doing and what he will continue to do. Amen? So, Father, we lift up this time. We want to thank you. We come boldly before your throne by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone in this room who has never asked for forgiveness, who have never had that provision of the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith, your sins can be forgiven. Call out to God. Say, forgive me. Cleanse me. I am a sinner. I can't make it into your heaven. I can't make it into your throne room apart from your son who died on the cross for me. And when you call out by that, by faith, just like Abraham, you are declared right standing before God and your sins are wiped away. And God forgets all those things and he makes you a new creation. And now you're called to a life of the Spirit and obedience in him. And there will be joy and love and peace and kindness and gentleness. There will also be much tribulation. So we invite you. Lord, pour out your spirit upon your people this week. Lead us and guide us in the things of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.